The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Excuse me, Captain Kirk. Yes, sir. Mr. Scott. What a charming negress. Oh, forgive me, my dear. I know that in my time some use that term as a description of property. But why should I object to that term, sir? You see, in our century, we've learned not to fear words. May I present our communications officer, Lieutenant Uhura? The foolishness of my century had me apologizing where no offense was given. We've each learned to be delighted with what we are. The Vulcans learned that centuries before we did. It is basic to the Vulcan philosophy, sir. The combination of a number of things to make existence worthwhile. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, February 11, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. And welcome to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the topic today. And our subject today, believe it or not, is going to be Black History Month. Did you know it was Black History Month, Robert? Yes, I heard that. And uh, February is Black History Month. When's White History Month? And uh, well, I, was, I was thinking that myself, you know. It's interesting looking at this whole situation of Black History Month. Uh, that was the first thought that occurred to me. I was also unaware of a White History Month or of a Yellow History Month or of a Red History Month. Is there a Mulatto History Month? Is there a 25% Mixed Race History Month? No, but there is a Black History Month. And why is that? To remember the African diaspora. Is that what it is? I thought so. Well, you know, it's an interesting question, and it's a question we're debating. Um, certainly today we're going to be hearing a lot about that. We're going to be hearing a lot of black voices on the subject. We brought a lot of very interesting clips today for you to, to listen in on. And basically, I think what we have to realize is, you know, black, when I think of the word black, it's just not a valid adjective to ever place in front of the word history because it results in this nonsensical, meaningless term. You know what I mean? Like, the term black history is to history, like saying, uh, you know, how, how Isabel Patterson says, uh, an, isos an isosceles triangle is green in the field of geometry, right? The color is non-essential. It's meaningless in the absence of defined actions and defined philosophies. I think history is a record of common events and causalities, not of colors. And that's where I think the whole thing gets wrong. It goes right off the track. And I've talked about this issue in public many times. You'll be hearing a little bit of that a little bit later. Um, I have to think African blacks have experienced a completely different history from American blacks or from blacks who descended, say, uh, from areas in Southeast Asia, which they did. They come from all over the world in terms of, of course, all of us supposedly originated in Africa at some point if you go back far enough, right? We're all Rift Valley refugees. Yes. So, you know, if color is your historical guide, how do you separate, you know, the black ones from all the other colors and still claim to have a history of anything, if you know what I mean? Um, 
because you can't separate them from the world in which they're in. I remember comedian Russell Peters uh, telling of his surprise at discovering the literally millions of East Indians whose ancestors, uh, going back seven and eight generations, were imported to South Africa as slaves. You know, and that's something, what are you going to do, lim eliminate that part of history from African history because they're not black? Is, is that what they're talking about? And... Um, so anyways, and because it is Black History Month, uh, you're going to be hearing a lot of the voices you don't usually get to hear from the black community. And I think that's part of the, what's going on here. But first, let's step back for a second. We'll do some deeper analyzing a little later on. I was looking at Larry Corney's article in the Free Press on January 30th, Canada's Black History Needs Chronicling, he writes. And there are some interesting statistics here. Good place to start. The number of Canadians who identify themselves as black has eclipsed 783,000. Of those, more than half, 52% of are, are of Caribbean origin. Another 42% trace their ancestry directed to African countries such as Ghana, Kenya, Sierra Leone, Malawi, Zimbabwe, and Sudan. The remaining 6% find their roots in Europe, in South America, and in North America, strangely enough. I don't know, did they just fill in the census that way, or is that the actual history? I don't know. But if one of the purposes of Black History Month, writes Larry Cornies, is to help Canadians better grasp the history and diversity of the black community in Canada, from the suburbs of Vancouver to the neighborhoods of Toronto and Montreal and the shores of Nova Scotia, why then do so many tracts, books, and websites focus on the Underground Railroad? Rosemary Sadlier, president of the Ontario Black History Society, wishes more Canadians had a clearer picture of the origins of the black community in Canada, which date back to 1603. And uh, that was the factual parts in the, in the article I found. The rest of it was a bit of wish-making. But the question I found myself asking at this point was, you know, why would anybody want to segregate a group of Canadians by their color from the rest of Canadians who otherwise, as Canadians, have shared a common history up till now? <laughs> Well, let me you know, play devil's advocate and ask okay. you a question. Is that it, history or is that politics? Well, That's no, what I want to know. It's politics, I think, but a uh, devil's advocate question. Now, you do have history based on geographical uh, parameters. For example, German history, mm -hmm. uh, American history, Canadian history, uh, history of Ontario. What's wrong, necessarily, with singling out a group of people? Sure, it's, it's based on a color in this point, but a group of people, for example, the Jewish diaspora. What's um, wrong with saying we can't record a history of the African diaspora? There's nothing wrong with saying you can't record it. That's not what's going on here. Ah, okay. This is what's not simply... On? Well, that's what we're going to be getting into, and even the history of... Black History Month was kind of revealing to me. We're going to be hearing a little bit about that later, and I know you did some research on your own. Mm -hmm. But I do have an answer to the question, why do so many tracks, books, and websites focus on the Underground Railroad as opposed to the rest of quote-unquote history? And I think it's because that was about freedom yes. and about the struggle to win it, not because it was about black people. If it had been a religious sect, if it had been somebody else, and we were doing that, that would also be part of history, and it would be a significant part. Because all of history is about fighting the war to win freedom. Not only that, Bob, it's a part of our shared history because the Underground Railroad involved a lot of white people. 
Of course. And it's always a two-way street. It's interesting it wasn't because just blacks. I bring that up. So listen, before we continue, let's find out a little bit more about Black History Month. What you're about to hear on this next clip was actually um, originally broadcast uh, almost two years ago to the day, just off by a few days back on February 21st on CTS, On the Line Viewpoints, where I was in uh, Burlington at the time with host Christine Williams. And you'll hear myself in this, as well as former McMaster professor Gary Warner, Ph.D. Now, of course, I'm the only, uh, well, let's put it this way, I'm the only person of non-color on the panel. And um, so it was an interesting issue to hear how other people would relate to this. But also we hear about uh, the history of Black History Month itself. So we'll listen in on this, and then after this, we'll continue the conversation. And the next issue we're discussing is Black History Month. Now, a poll of... 10,000 Americans was conducted in the U.S. And what I found was this, that 43% of Americans believe that setting one month a year for this is, well, they, they describe it as a token gesture, while 39% say it's an opportunity, a great opportunity to raise awareness. So we're discussing this. I mean, you're not having a consensus here, but the article that we have goes back into the history of how it was, um, it, it came into being in the first place, which I think is very relevant as we continue to discuss this issue. Now, I'm going to start with you, actually, on this, um, Gary. W what's your position? Do you think it's something good? Well, I, I understand all of the objections, namely that, well, there's tokenism, that there are too many things happening at the same time, that uh, outside of this uh, period of the year, then it's all forgotten. So I understand those things. My question, however, is uh, if we abolish Black History Month, would we be better off in terms of bringing these issues to public consciousness? And my answer to that question is no. We would not be any better off. Um, because um, the, the origin of, of the celebration of, of, uh, of Black History Month I mean, has to do with the historical context and with our experience that... Um, that mm -hmm. the African history, an African-American and African-Canadian history culture at were downplayed, ignored, mm -hmm. and, you know, and not considered. I always tell the story of Sir Hugh Trevor Roper, who, when I was at university in the 60s, mm -hmm. was, still, was still saying there is no history of, of Africa, only the history of Europeans in Africa. And in terms of equality, so there's not just only at the cultural level, but in terms of, uh, of social acceptance, and et cetera, et cetera, that there is still a lot left to be done that justifies the, the promotion of a, of a Black History Month. Yes. Robert, your position well, on this? I think there is an African history. I, I know an African historian by the name of Dr. George Aidi, who I've met with personally. He wrote African Indigenous Institutions, mm -hmm. gave me my autographed copy, and it's all about the history of Africa. and. Uh, even gets into free market, how the, the tribal leaders kept trade routes open and things like that. But I get very uncomfortable when you start to color history by a color, black history. Because if you're going to say black history, then t it seems to me that you have to exclude all other historical externalities by race. Because mm -hmm. black people don't just... Uh, interplay with themselves. They, they, they talk, you know, history yes. is a, is, and, is and a that, big and that's picture. A, that's an essential argument, but I think it's also important to go we to delve back into the, well. into the history here. <laughs> Be 
because Carter Woodson was the man that brought this into being. Now, in 1926, he mm -hmm. actually created Negro History Week. Now, it's important to recognize here, this was, this was a man that was born in 1875, and he was the son of former slaves. He was unschooled, a coal miner, and he actually rose against the odds, and he ended up with a doctorate in history from, um, from Harvard, believe it or not. But you see, his intention was to create a week that was celebrated among blacks at that time. But as time went on, it was very interesting how it expanded because then the whites started to become interested. And when you look at, as this article points out, which was, I thought it was very interesting because the article points back to the history with Abraham Lincoln, with Frederick Douglass, and whites became interested because they saw it as a, as a way to go ahead and there was an advantage when it came to gaining the black votes. So it ended up being expanded into Black History Month. So it's not as if somebody in a vacuum just said, well, let, let's just celebrate black history. It has a heritage in the States, given, given the history of slavery, given the civil rights movement, Abraham Lincoln and so on. Would you describe, so it evolved. Okay. It evolved into something today. Would you exclusively describe the history of slavery as black history? I wouldn't. I would describe no, there, it as part of American history, yes, uh, specifically of South American history. But you do understand how it evolved. Oh, yeah. You do understand how yeah. it evolved. So you're saying that now's the time to abolish it, that it's, it's served its, its purpose. Yeah. No, I think that... Because we could see how it evolved. It, it happened. Any history that's yes. relevant to where we are today is relevant. It doesn't matter <laughs> who the person is that was yeah. part of the consequence. But, Go ahead. Fully yes. yes. the, the, the point is that that here, here you had history that for a very long period of time was taught that excluded a set of people. <laughs> so when you say there was, when you say yeah. there was no black history or no white history, there certainly was. There certainly was because black well, people... Well, I just don't define it by black and white. I well, define it no. by African or North but, but American. The man, the man instituted something to celebrate within his community. Understood. He didn't make the choice to expand yeah. it. Yeah. I still say you can't get away from the history of how it evolved. Mm -hmm. And at what point do you say, look, it's time to include other groups. It's time to say goodbye to this. It, it ends up being an issue that well, you know, history, we need to confront. Yes. History becomes politics, okay? And history is rewritten constantly by the current political powers that be. But still, when you start getting official histories by government, and, you know, you can't speak against it. Uh, it's almost like the global warming thing. You can't speak against it now because it's an official <laughs> statement by the government. Although right? so more and more I are. Think, <laughs> I think all yes. sciences and anything mm -hmm. that's in an educational field has to be free and, and you have to be able to debate it and, and, course, and have and the controversy. That's why we're here. And I think that's what, I, that's what scares me about when government gets involved and it wants to hmm. end the debate. It it's wants to create a, a, an environment of some sort of fear so you don't challenge certain ideas. Interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, we can what go on forever. What have to do with this? Uh, yeah. Public, education. public education. Public education and the public school education. system because that's really what we're talking about. Yeah. You wouldn't be faced with the problem if you had an education system. This can go on and on, you know, I know, but we're going to have to go on to the next topic. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Robert Vaughn with Robert Metz. And you can join the conversation at 519-661-3600. What an interesting topic and what an interesting discussion on that CTS clip. I, I thought it was, and, and it was interesting how it was the, the white political apparatus, as she described it, that took over the Black History Month to mm -hmm. promote politics to blacks and, of course, get them to sign up mostly for the Democratic Party. Well, isn't that interesting? That uh, history itself is not segregated, if you want to use that word, into black and white. You can't. They're all grouped together. I mean, one how, how can you How can other. you talk about the history of slavery and only talk about the slaves and not the slavers? That's right. Or the people you know? who freed the slaves, who are a lot of them were white. Exactly. It's all part of one history. And, and the, well, what, what happens when you 
when you isolate black from the equation, you're turning these these people into things. It, it's I, I, I find it kind of offensive. I've got to be honest with you, but I'll be getting into that a little bit deeper later on because uh, we, uh, this gets right down to the meaning of what history is all about and uh, what is the real history of Africa and the background, of, which I'm going to touch on later because I've been fortunate enough to meet a number of black people who have told me what the real history of Africa is like. That's right. So uh, we want to get into that later, but you have some interesting things there. Too. Well, yeah, just a couple just of following up on to, this uh, Black History Month. Yeah, and to follow history. up on your comments about uh, how history is so complex, and you just cannot pick and choose the events that you want to talk about, and and say that that is Black History. You know, for example, she talked about, or on that CTS show, they talked about Carter G. Woodson, who did create uh, Negro History Week back in 1926, and Woodson actually chose the second week of February because it marked the birthdays of two Americans who greatly influenced the lives and social conditions of African-Americans, that being, of course, uh, former President Abraham Lincoln and abolitionist and former slave uh, Frederick Douglass. And that's perfectly appropriate at that point. Of course it is. I would not have any objection to that. Except for one thing. Um, What's interesting uh, about the Abraham Lincoln thing is that there's common misconception that Lincoln freed the slaves and that the Civil War was fought over slavery. In fact... The war was fought over secession, and Lincoln, in his first inaugural address, said, and I'm quoting here by Lincoln, I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so, unquote. Certainly not the words of a man bent on freeing slaves. No. No, of course not. I mean, the war was about secession. It was about keeping the Union together. It was not about slavery. That was an ancillary uh, consequence of winning the war. That's all it was. And Lincoln happened to be there, and he was a pragmatist, and he played both sides of the fences. And on his second inaugural speech, he actually talked about freeing the slaves and what an evil it was. But in his first inaugural address, he had no inclination about freeing slaves. And I think that that's really interesting to note. And that's the thing about history. You cannot forget things like that. Otherwise, your history is colored. (laughs) Well, in that sense, yes. Okay, that was an interesting point. Yeah, and uh, also I think that Black History Month shouldn't be used to revive history with along that point, with all the, the great black men and women who fought for freedom, and I think some you're going to be talking about some more of those, and equality during the African-American Civil Rights Movement, people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. We cannot forget that there are, a lot of, there are many blacks who aim to destroy freedom. No black history can whitewash over, pardon the pun, whitewash over people like uh, Louis Farrakhan, who called Hitler a great man and called Judaism a gutter religion, or the convicted criminal and racist Malcolm X, who said that, quote, black people were superior to white people and that the demise of the white race was imminent. Many celebrate, Bob, many celebrate Black History Month, not just to remember the history of African, of the African diaspora, but as a celebration of African history and culture. It was a good thing. But again, any telling of history must include the evil with the good. And to this day, slavery exists in Africa and even predated the Atlantic slave trade. Americans didn't invent slavery. That was in Africa long before the Americans came over and, and t- took the slaves. Tens of millions of Africans have died in just the past decade during wars in Africa. There's currently 15 African <clears throat> countries at war, either with themselves or with others. African history is replete with human rights abuses, tortures, genocide, cruelty, despotism remember Idi Amin oh yeah and today Robert Mugabe 
has taken the somewhat prosperous nation of Zimbabwe and turned it into one of the poorest countries on the planet with his socialist and racist policies. So, celebrate Black History Month if you feel that you can get something positive from it. That's, that's good. But remember that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. And I want to end off on such a, uh, uh, you know, a camp quote because everybody always talks about well, that. I want to end off on a, a bit of more positive okay. quote from Henry Ford, and I think he puts it into perspective that I like to think about <laughs> okay. history because I don't think of history as black or white or anything like that as well. And then I, I think more of the present and the future than of the past, though we don't want to repeat the, the mistakes of the past. Henry Ford said, history is more or less bunk. It's tradition. We don't want tradition. We want to live in the present, and the only history that is worth a tinker's dam is the history we make today, unquote. What do you think of that quote, Bob? I like the last part, the sentiment of the last part. I yeah. don't know that I'd say history is bunk. Well, I, I um, agree with that, actually. It, it, yeah. it, it can be, but if you don't know what real history is from the fake history, because history is always being written maybe and colored, that ref- but Maybe that's what he's referring to. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about... Uh, you know, really, what is history? Um, you know, I said in the last break, or before the last break, I said the real history of mankind is a history of freedom. It really is. It's nothing else. Or to put it in the words of Isabel Patterson, who said it the best, she said, quote, history within nations consists of the struggle of the individual against government, and between nations, between the free economy against the closed economy. That is the history of the world, right there. In human affairs, all that endures is what men think. Humanity as such is an intellectual concept. Nations and cultures are ideas. If an idea contains a universal principle, it will merge races. If it cuts across an idea previously accepted, it will divide nations in fatal strife. Where force is the arbiter, government ceases. And that's the lesson that has never been learned from history and that you see being you know, done over and over and over again. But before I get into the history of Africa, I just want to talk about what I found out about history in general. I actually looked up the word in the encyclopedia and amazing. Every time you look up a definition, you learn more than you do reading 200 books on the subject. And basically history... The way I looked at it was, you know, that which is recorded and known about the past. If nobody ever wrote about it or recorded it, uh, that history wouldn't exist, would it? We wouldn't know about it. That's right. No matter what happens. But you can't record every event in history. So what do you write about? Conflict. Um, Possibly. But Funk and Wagnalls describes history as, quote, a connected or related series of facts or events, especially those concerning a specific group or subject. More importantly, history is a recording of mankind's significant changes and movements towards or away from freedom, not an eternal record of one tribalist slave society after another that could never lift itself out of the muck. That, to me, is not history, to record that generation after generation lived the same as a generation before. You know, that, that might be a fact, the fact of history. But there's nothing to learn from that. But there's fact. nothing to learn from it. It's not history. Nothing changes. There are no, there's no plot. There's no principles. There's no lesson to carry to, for us to use in the present. Are you saying it would make for bad TV? Uh, wouldn't it? <laughs> now, this is interesting. This is from the World Reference Encyclopedia, and I quote, The field of history goes back to prehistoric time when it had its inception in myths and sagas. History came into legitimate capacity through the recording of inscriptions and chronicles, often on tablets of enduring stone, but in many instances of doubtful value to historians of today because of the forgotten codification in which they were written. 
Chronicles were accounts of fact only and were not interpolated with the writer's philosophy as later came to be the case. This departure was a questionable one for the historical storyteller often, here's that word, colored his material at the expense of the truth. Oh, by the way, this was written back in the 1950s, 1940s and 50s. The advent of Christianity introduced a new era in the manner of history narration, for Christian philosophy came to color the whole scene, being predicated to the conviction that all history was henceforth to be a projection of the personality of Christ. With the Reformation came a stern revival of the scientific method of history narration. Later, under the influence of Hegel and Conti, historians were using the new social sciences for the interpretation of history. Karl Marx, in Das Kapital, 1867-94, to attempted to apply an elaborate theory of economic determinism into the reading of history. Now remember that, economic determinism, Karl Marx. That is what Black History Month is about. That's what all the black uh, things that government's getting into. We're going to demonstrate this shortly. But uh, So you're talking about economic determinism in the reading of history. Then scientific obje objectivity on the one hand and social or economic interpretation on the other characterized the latter 19th century. With the 20th century came a reaction against scientific specialization and objectivity. Isn't that interesting? Yes, it is. Being replaced by a, quote, more pluralistic view or cause. So history began to be written to support causes. And that's, just, that's where it ends because that's where when the encyclopedia was written was in the mid-1950s. Well, wouldn't that suggest so, that Black History Month is, is valid in a sense because if it's been written by white people with a white perspective prior to uh, Black History uh, Week back in 1926, wouldn't there's sort of like the pendulum swinging the other way to include blacks in the history where they had been excluded uh, before? I, I, I don't know that... I can't, I'm not even sure how to answer that question. It doesn't seem like a valid question to me. Like a white historian you mean can't write about black history well, I think is that, that what you're was saying discussed on the cts um discussion yeah. there was that history was uh brought from a perspective of white people no 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 again you get falling into the color trap it's not about white it's about significant it doesn't matter what color the skin of galileo was the things he discovered if he had been black was that then black history maybe he was black i don't know but the famous things, the important things that happened generally happened in Europe. And they happened in Europe because Europe was the first place on earth, generally in the modern times, to have gotten rid of some of that collectivism, the tribalism that plagued all of the world, including Europe, even into the second half, into the last century, even until now. Hitler was a classic example of tribalism in Europe. And so it's not about that. History is about the events themselves. And... For example, um, Dr. George Bien Ayidi, um, he's a Bradley scholar, native of Ghana. You know, he's the fellow that I met. He was speaking here at the University of Western Ontario back in the early 1980s. He wrote a book called Indigenous African Institutions, which essentially concluded, quote, that while colonialism was pernicious and brutal, it did not totally destroy native African institutions and in many ways contributed to their strength. The modern dictatorships under African elites argues, um, 
Dr. Aidi, uh, are equally pernicious and brutal and at the same time bent on the wholesale destruction of African institutions, squandering human resources and diverting foreign aid funds to their own private Swiss bank accounts, which you still read about to these days. Of course. And so Aidi believes, of course, that Africans and only Africans building upon their indigenous past can solve Africa's problems. And, um, you know, I have a book by him, and he wrote on the front, he, he autographed it for me. He says, to Bob, for all your help and encouragement, Africa thanks you. <laughs> and you might, you might wonder why. That's because I published a couple of his articles, which I'll be referring to one a little later, uh, in some publications that we happen to publish. But here is the thing that really, really disturbed me most of everything that I've seen. Um, you know, from the coloring of history to the coloring of the, the, the social issues that they want to push with it, and, and in this case, poverty. Using the color of your skin, I call it, to, call it, to hide the color of your ideas. You know, at a time when the president of the U.S. is a black man, you know, at a time when everyone is now able to say with certainty and evidence that being black should not be an obstacle to getting to the top, what do we see going on in our society here in Canada and paid for by the government telling us exactly the opposite? that black people are disadvantaged by virtue of their color. You know, Canadian historian Joe Armstrong is one person who used to identify a, a major Canadian trend, a worldwide trend, but that's creating a victim culture, creating victims out of people so government can help them, which gives government a lot of power. And I saw this article called Probing Poverty's Link with Race from the London Free Press by Kate Dubinsky on February 8th. The color of poverty, it says, the campaign is collecting and analyzing data linking race and poverty to develop assistance programs. And it reads, Shand Licorice knows poverty and race are linked. He knows it, you see. But the head of London's Color of Poverty campaign has to collect data to let others know it. The Color of Poverty campaign runs with money from the Ontario Trillium Foundation that gave $225,000 to collect and analyze data linking race and poverty. Can you imagine that, Robert? and to develop programs to bridge the gap with representatives from the London Police, the Cross-Cultural Learning Center, and the Canadian Auto Workers Human Rights Committee. <laughs> All the left-wingies and, you know. And, he, and then he says, I think the racialization of poverty is real and we have to work together to address it, says Licorice. The term racialized, says the paper, refers to people of color. In Ontario, 32% of kids in racialized families live in poverty, the Provincial Color of Poverty campaign says, end quote. And of course, that's what it says. The fix was in before they ever did that study. And, you know, my quick, quick question is, before we go to break, is um, why are they studying this? Why don't they study the conditions of wealth and the things that create wealth? And, 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 and emulate it. And emulate that. And I'll tell you why. The reason is because to study wealth, you've got to study freedom and capitalism. <laughs> you know what I mean? And communists, socialists, and collectivists of every sort want something for nothing. And under the capitalist commandment, thou shalt not steal, you just can't do that kind of thing. A free market is free from coercion, and coercion is, you know, is the means that all governments use for assistance programs. So, you know, that's basically the whole situation that you have there. Got to take a break now. We're at the bottom of the hour. And when we come back on the other side of the break, what you'll be hearing is an incredible clip by Dr. Walter Williams that was taped back in 1995, also in February, in which he was in a question and answer session in some kind of workshop or something down in the States. And he was asked about what he, as a very famous black economist, by the way, felt uh, about affirmative action. But we'll be taking a break now, and we'll be back. Nina. What is that thing on your hand? It's called a decoud. 
Oh, I think it's beautiful. Thank you. It's authentic. It makes me feel connected to my ancestors. Oh. So that's the traditional headdress of ancient secretaries. <laughs> no. Of my African ancestors, in case you haven't noticed, I'm black. Well, of course I noticed. And, uh, Dr. Albright, you are... Could I be any whiter? <laughs> what? I'm sorry. All you people look alike to me. Excuse me? affirmative action is a gross violation of human rights in general. Now, I don't believe that we handle discrimination by more discrimination. Um, moreover, I think that affirmative action conceals many of the Many of the big problems that face uh, many Americans, say blacks and Hispanics. Let me just give you an idea, uh, just a very, very brief idea of this. In Washington, D.C., and it's like this in most other big city schools, just a couple weeks ago, they reported on the kids in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is predominantly a black city. They reported on the the, uh, the, the tests, the scholastic achievement tests, or assessment tests rather, of the students in Washington, D.C. No high school students, no high school had an average of 300. I'm sorry. Uh, most of the high schools had an average of 300. Very, schools, very few high schools, I think one or two, had an average of 400. And the national average is 500 on those tests. Now, that, that is a tragedy. That is, if you have those kind of scores, kids graduating high school having those kind of scores, it means that they cannot read and count very well. Now, if you see those kids not getting into college, not getting jobs, <clears throat> and you call it discrimination, you say we need more affirmative action for kids to get into college, then you gloss over the problem because the real problem is the fraudulent education that those kids are receiving. The grossly fraudulent education. And then I might add that affirmative action has some very, very destructive effects, particularly for black people. Consider the case at Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley. Now, Berkeley turns away 2,000 straight A Asian and white students in order to make room for blacks and Hispanics in their program. 
Now, the black students who attend Berkeley, their average SAT score is around 960, which is above the national average. Now, but however, those black students, 70% do not graduate from Berkeley. 70% don't graduate from Berkeley. Now, a lot of people feel sorry, and I do as well, for the white and Asian students who have been turned down from Berkeley in order to make room for students who are going to flunk out of Berkeley. But they're still better off than the black students because graduating from the school of your second choice is better than flunking out of the school of your first choice. <laughs> now, what goes on here, here's the tragedy now. As I said, those black students that are in Berkeley, they make 960 on SAT, above the national average, which is no great shakes, but nonetheless is above the national average. The problem is, is that at Berkeley, the average SAT there is uh, 1250 or close to 1300. They're mismatched. Now, what, what, what affirmative action programs do, it sends black kids who could have been successes at second tier schools, nonetheless respectable second tier schools like San Jose State University, uh, uh, California State University, where they could have graduated and they're sending them up to Berkeley so that Berkeley can have a nice color mix, making them artificial failures. Let me just give one other dramatic example. At MIT, the black students in their engineering school, they're on, uh, I believe, something like 60% are on academic probation at MIT. MIT is one of the top engineering schools in the country. Now, those black students at MIT they have, they are in the top 10% nationally of all students in terms of SAT scores. The cream of the crop nationally. What's the problem at MIT? It turns out that everybody else at MIT is in the top 1% of SAT scores. They're people who are scoring 1600 on the exam where these black students are scoring 12 and 1300. Now they're being taken in the name of affirmative action, they're being taken to MIT, turned into failures where they could be successes at University of Pennsylvania Engineering School. That's not so powerful, but nonetheless respectable. It's almost like you're saying to me, Williams, will you please teach me how to box? And the first fight I get you is with Mike Tyson <laughs> or George Foreman. Now you might have the potential to be a good boxer, but you're going to get your brains blown out before you learn how to bob and weave. That's very often the case with the affirmative action uh, programs. And we have to pay more attention to individuals. And I might also add, black people don't need a quota. I think quotas are insulting. You know, at one time, blacks were not allowed in professional baseball, professional basketball, professional football. Today, blacks are 78% of NBA players and the highest paid ones, 54% of professional football players, also highest paid ones. Now, how do you explain that? Do you explain that through affirmative action? No. 
The reason why blacks are 78% of professional basketball players is because these guys can do a 360 slam dunk in your face and you can't stop them. <laughs> That's why. And if, 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 if those kind of skills were available in physics and chemistry, it would be the same story. Thank you very much, folks. Been a delight. Well, wasn't that a powerful message? Walter Williams is brilliant. Um, and he speaks from experience, and he's studied these things for years and years. Uh, you know, the idea of, of aid, constant aid for a group, is so devastating to the group being helped. And uh, before we go to the next break, I just want to do this one story that Dr. George Aidi gave me. And this is from the article that I republished in uh, my own magazine called Consent, which, of course, you were once the managing editor of. And uh, this is by Dr. George Aidi. And these are just the, the keys. This was written, by, and, and by the way, this originally appeared, I think, in um, the New York something or other, one, one of those papers down there that we reprinted it. But it was October 18th, uh, 1991. And at that time, uh, Dr. Aidi wrote, quote, and by the way, Dr. Aidi, if you don't have a sense of who he is, he's kind of the Milton Friedman of Ghana, okay? And if you talk to any person from Ghana, they'll know who he is. They know his name. It's as common as most people here would, might know Milton Friedman, you know? But um, he writes, or wrote, rather, For decades, Africa was coddled and cradled by a West that felt burdened by guilt for colonialism and slavery. The continent has collected more than $300 billion in aid since the early 1960s. Again, this was written in 91. In the 1980s, Africans who constitute about 12% of the developing world's population were receiving about 22% of the West's development assistance. Foreign aid per individual African amounted to $26, as against about $9 per Latin American and $6 per Asian. Omit the Arab countries of North Africa, and the figure was even higher, $46 per person in black Africa between 1980 and 1988. In poor small countries, these sums loom very large. The $8.6 billion poured into Tanzania between 1970 and 1988, get this, is more than four times that country's gross domestic product. Relative to the size of the economy, it would be as if some kindly donor had given the United States $20 trillion, or four times the value of all of Saudi Arabia's proven oil reserves. The $9.6 billion to given to Sudan over that period is only slightly less than one year of that country's annual output. The $5.8 billion that Zaire, Mozambique, Niger, Togo, and Zambia each received were equivalently huge amounts. But all that Western aid failed to spur economic growth and lift Africans out of grinding poverty. Above all, Africa's leaders used aid to finance Swiss bank socialism. Zaire's Sesi Mobuto is said to be worth $10 billion. Zambia's Kenneth Kadua has been accused of looting $6 billion. Africa's people have been sunk deeper into poverty. Per capita income in black Africa has steadily dropped through the 1980s. It's gone down keeps going down while they're pouring all this money in. Western sympathy for demands for aid is premised on the naive presumption that helping African governments necessarily helps the African people. Free enterprise, free markets, free trade, and government consensus were the norm across ind 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 indigenous Africa. almost couldn't say it. Self-sufficiency and independence were cultural imperatives. If you rely on somebody for food, 
you will go without breakfast, says a proverb of the Fanti people of Ghana. And that <laughs> basically says it all. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. To yeah. see that much. And, and, and here you have locally somebody saying, well, we've got to pour money into this group because it's going to help us. Yeah, it's going to help you. It's going to well, help you like it helped. The parallel is now uh, with Haiti. Let's just yes. see how Haiti... Well, and, and you're, you're going to see the same thing happen there. And uh, I know it's a quick time to take, go to the next break, but this, again, is worth hearing. This is from the Free to Choose series of 1980, and the subject that day was equality. And, uh, of course, Milton Friedman, the late Milton Friedman, is one of the people you're here. The other two people you're going to hear, I, I, I broke it down, I only cut out three voices. There were many others in this debate. It lasted half an hour. The, um, the ambassador from Britain was so hard to take, I had to cut him out. He was, everything he said was irrelevant to the debate, and everybody else was just rolling their eyes at him, so he was kind of useless. But I left the three key people in, and that was Francis Fox Piven, who's professor of political science at Boston University at that time. This, again, is 1980. Thomas Sowell, professor of economics yes. at UCLA, and, of course, Milton Friedman, who was a late Nobel economist. So this is from the um, Free to Choose series, 1980, and they're talking about equality. And I basically picked those areas of the conversation that more concentrated on the black issue, particularly since uh, Thomas Sowell is a black professor of economics. And he had a few things to say uh, to the liberal professor of politics, and that makes this all the more entertaining. Mr. Friedman is right that all over the world, people are beginning to stir and are striving for a measure of equality, for a measure of justice. But I think he demeans and trivializes those struggles when he tells us all that we can't all have Marlena Dietrich's legs. Moreover, he confuses us by using the term freedom. I think what Mr. Friedman means by the term freedom is economic license. And economic license, the economic license of those who control property and those who control capital has in fact been a threat not only to equality but a threat to the freedom of peoples all over the world and not only in Europe and in the United States but in Africa, in Asia and in Latin America. First of all, I would disagree violently with the notion that the people are stirring. A very small handful of intellectuals have generated an enormous amount of noise. When I look at opinion polls, particularly if I look at opinion polls of blacks in the United States, most blacks in the United States do not take any strong position in favor of equality of results. In fact, most of the polls that I've seen of blacks put them, if you want to use this expression, uh, very well to the right of most intellectuals on most of these social issues. It is not the people who are stirring, it is a handful of intellectuals. The question is not absolute equality, it's a question of what concept of equality you're, you're aiming at whether you're getting it absolutely or to one degree or the other. Are you aiming at a concept of equality of opportunity at the outset, or are you aiming at a concept of equality of results? It's also not a question of whether it's material goods only, whether it's material goods, status, or whatnot. Again, the same question comes back. Are you thinking about equality of opportunity, prospective equality, or are you thinking about retrospective results at the finish line? And I think that's the crucial distinction. What I mean by equality is the concept I would like to see pursued is a concept that Tom Sowell just discussed of equality of opportunity. The concept that increasingly is being taken up by the intellectual community is, in, is equality of results. That's when you say that it is wrong for government to intervene in the free enterprise system to do something about inequality, you evoke a model of a free enterprise system which does not exist and has never existed to a significant extent in history or anywhere in the world. That so-called free enterprise system has always used government 
the entrepreneurs of that free enterprise system have always used government. And the question that you raise is whether other people can use government to achieve their ends. That is the free not enterprise the system, as it is spread around the world, as it is spread to Asia and Africa and Latin America, has spread through the force of arms among other things, and those arms were wielded by governments. That was government intervention under the name of the free enterprise system, but a government intervention which destroyed the freedoms of many people, not least of which are the people of Chile. I government. agree with you that everything called free enterprise is not free enterprise. I agree with Where you that many it? things have been done under the name of free enterprise that are not consistent with free enterprise. I agree with you, and we stress over and over again in this series, that whenever businessmen have the chance, they will, of course, use government to pursue objectives which may or may not be in the interest of the public at large. But it, you always are talking about mixed systems. And I challenge you to find a single example in history at any time of any society where people have been relatively free. And I don't mean merely what you call merely economic freedom. You I mean freedom in license. the full sense. I mean freedom of individuals to pursue their own objectives, their own values, to live their lives. I want you to name me any society in which you've had any large measure of that freedom, where capitalism and free enterprise has not been the predominant mechanism for controlling economic activity. Not the sole mechanism, but the dominant one. I want you to name me one exception. Your conception of freedom, does that apply in Chile today? Where the Chile is not politically free. I think we're talking across purposes. On the one hand, we're talking about results that we're hoping for. On the other hand, we're talking about processes that we're setting in motion. Uh, you're saying, should we hope for certain kinds of lessening of inequality and so on? Uh, the real question, the political question is, shall we set in motion certain processes because we hope for that? And do those processes enhance or reduce freedom? And I think the argument that Milton is making, certainly the argument that I would make, is that the attempt at doing these things. And it doesn't really matter. It's a complete straw man to talk about absolute inequality. As a result, you see, that you set up processes whose who's, who's end result may not be any more or less inequality than exists now. But the question is, those processes may indeed reduce freedom greatly. Uh, I would go beyond the question of equality and, and put it more generally, that any process to ascribe any status to any group of people equality, inferiority, superiority, must necessarily reduce freedom because whatever the government wishes to ascribe to any group, whatever, whatever place, to use the phrase that was very common in the South, that blacks should have their place, whatever place the government is going to assign to people, that place will not coincide, wait, that, that place will not coincide either with, with what all those people are doing or with how others perceive all those people because there's too much diversity among human beings. To maintain any system of ascribed status from the top is going to mean reducing people's freedom across the spectrum. That's right. the point. People have an ascribed status. It isn't as if government by its intervention creates it. People are born into this world in a given sector of a society, and many, many of them are born at the bottom of the society. The argument for, uh, about equality of results was an argument that was linked to equality of opportunity. People recognized that unless there was a degree of equality in a, a degree of there enough food, enough security, uh, access to education, 
unless these things were available to all children, then equality of opportunity was merely a mockery. That's why equality of results became an issue, and it became an issue for black people in the United States, and they expressed their concern, no, whatever they the opinion You expressed polls, it, damn it, look. <laughs> The, 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 no, they did not. They, they did not. They expressed that. They expressed their will by their extraordinary participation in a protest movement that began in the late 1950s and didn't end now, until the I 1960s. have never. Intellectuals were not in that protest movement. You want me to black answer or you want to keep on? You want me to answer? I finished. Yes. Good. Black people have never supported, for example, affirmative action quotas, anything of that sort, wherever polls have been taken of black opinion on such matters of should people be paid equally or should there be this or that, black people have never taken a position that you describe. So it is not a question of what black people chose to do. It's what you, you choose to put in the mouths of black people. It is what you choose to, to project. It is not what any black people have ever said anywhere that you can put your it's finger on. It's what you on. choose to put into the mouth of the pollsters, as far as I can see. I put them the mouth of the pollsters. The leadership of the black community. Like most people, I have never seen a pollster. If you look at the leadership of the black... <laughs> Ever seen a pollster, Robert? Oh, yes. <laughs> Wasn't that an interesting uh, uh, conf confrontation? That then? is fascinating, Bob, the way that they describe the fact that it's white people, or let's say non-white or non-black people, who are keeping blacks down through affirmative action programs and other socialist programs and handouts. They're keeping them down because these people need victims. Can you imagine yeah. the NDP or socialists? How would they survive if they didn't have the victims? Well, they wouldn't have a, they wouldn't have a platform. They wouldn't have a platform. They need victims and they actually make victims. Because remember, all of their platforms are based on redistributing wealth from producers to non-producers. And so they mm. have to make sure most people are non-producers. Now, to get to a question you asked earlier, you talked about the legitimacy of color, race, and creed being included in some of these historical accounts. Devil's well, advocate Yes. Question. Well, I agree that they have always been factors in historical events. I can't deny that. But they're never the driving force. Anything I've seen, it's never been color, race, and creed that drove the force. The thing that always is the driving force of history within the milieu of color, race, and creed, and it doesn't matter whether it's white, black, pink, orange, or green, uh, is individual freedom versus the tribal collective. It's voluntary trade versus pillaging and looting. That's the history mm -hmm. of humanity. Yep. So if you're prone to thinking in terms of groups or of tribes, then really, really any collective identity will suffice. And you can see this all the time with politicians demonstrating their collectivist roots when they speak in terms of women's interests, farmers' interests, unions' interests, workers' interests, business taxpayers' interests, interest, business' interests, yeah, patient' interests, doctor' interests, and of course, in the greater good. All nebulous things that mean nothing. Blah, 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 blah. I want your money. Thanks. Gimme, give gimme, give gimme. Give yeah. And all of these things are unreal. It is never the color of a person's skin that determines character or his history. It's the color of his ideas. People who think of themselves as members of a race, color, group, or group based on ethnicity or language are known as tribalists. That's what they're called. And, and, and the belief in the group before the individual is a very integral part of the idea of collectivism. You know, the most terrifying case, of course, being what happened in Europe during the last World War. So by focusing on skin color specifically, the effect, if not the intent, is to raise the awareness not of the history, but of the skin color. 
Can you tell me different? No, that's precisely That's what yeah. it's for. And, you know, it places those of that respective skin color or whatever the collectivist standard is, strangely enough, at a disadvantage with respect to the people who are based on other collective collectivizations, which is not always, in this case, just whites, you know. And, and it's, I always used to joke, you know, there's a white elephant in the racist room, <laughs> since whites are generally excluded from most government-initiated affirmative action laws and prohibitions. What does that say? What is the government screaming? I remember when I was in with the Human Rights Commission defending Elijah Elif and the government coming in and telling me uh, about all these evil stereotypes of, of Asians, which I had never heard in my life. My, my stereotypes were exactly the opposite of the horrible ones they were giving me. And so was Mr. Elif. He'd never heard of them, and yet he was being prosecuted for holding that opinion. <laughs> all right. So that's what happens. That's the world we live in, folks, and I think that when people want to break things down into color and define issues based on color or groupism of any sort, you're being taken for a ride, and so is the person who thinks that they're being helped. And that's all we got to say today. Robert? I think we said a lot today, Bob. Okay, I think we've got to get out of here. Let's, uh, let's hit that button, and we hope that you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be and you know, I think what, uh, you know, there's a lot of profile going on with ethnic minorities and uh, there's one that definitely shouldn't be done and that's people from the Caribbean. Hardworking, fun-loving, wonderful people. If anything, here in Canada, we should welcome the people from the Caribbean, you know? What's the most popular Calypso song of all time? Anybody, anybody know? Very good, <laughs> excellent. Well, why don't we Canadianize that for them, make them feel really welcome, something like this. Baby! <laughs> Baby, come on, I won't go store. <laughs> come, Mr. Salesman, selling me pajamas. <laughs> be, he said, be, he said, be, he said, be, be. Scratch and save nearly 20%. <laughs> Bought so much Tupperware, can't pay my freaking rent. 